So turnover's sanity, profit sanity, cash flow's reality. Yeah. You know, so my CEO looks at the kind of accounting book and I look at the cash book. So I, yeah. all I care about is how much money we've got coming in and how much money we've got going out. You yeah. know, so that's my that's my main thing. And, uh, and if you've got more coming in than going out, then things are good. If you've got more going out than coming in, then things are not so good. Welcome back to How I Built This, uh, the only podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Scottish technology companies. Um, as always, we're sponsored by Cathcart Associates, technology recruitment experts headquartered in Edinburgh. Today on the show, I'm speaking to Peter Proud, CEO of Forit, uh, a cloud-based CMS platform helping customers deliver digital experiences. Welcome to the show, Peter. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me, Liam. No worries. I was going to do loads more on what you guys do and realize you'd be better at telling everyone and I didn't want to waffle on for too long. Um, but before we jump into for it, um, I thought it was probably made sense to do a very kind of whistle stop tour through your career. So I think I'm right in saying your background is, is technology sales essentially, right? Yep. Yeah. Nice. I worked for tech companies all my career pretty much. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So you work for IBM, Microsoft, Accenture, kind of variety of roles. Was that kind of sales, technology sales, did that just kind of come naturally to you or did you kind of fall into it by accident? I would say when I was young, a guy, one of the guys I was connected with when I was a bit older, you know, he, he, he was driving around in a portion of when he was 21, you know, and I thought, right, I wouldn't mind some of that. So uh, I never got a Porsche, actually. It just wasn't really my thing. But, uh, you know, I saw one of my pals when I was young making tons of cash uh, and the IT side of things, and it, and it was just something that interested me, right? I like technology. I'm actually an engineer, right? So I like technology, but um, I, I don't I didn't want to kind of work too hard on the engineering side. I, I saw there was a lot easier ways of doing things. So uh, the sales side to me, for me was a lot more appealing. Uh, I'm more a people person, so I, I went into the sales side of the business rather than the technology side. What kind of things... When you started your career, kind of what what was the te- technology landscape, and and oh obviously it's changed, it's changed so much. But when you first started well, out, like what what were the kind of things you were involved in? Well, I, I remember I remember getting my first computer at Microsoft, and uh, God, this would be ninety six, and I think it had one hundred and twenty megabytes hard disk, and it had eight megabytes of RAM. And the guy said, "You'll never need a new computer in your life." <laughs> and I was like, you know, that was quite funny. Um, and, and when I joined Microsoft, right, we, we, we didn't have a big portfolio of products, right? Just think, they didn't have the Xbox, they didn't have SharePoint, you know, Exchange was brand spanking new, we just launched Windows 95. We had a chat function in Windows for work groups, which was revolutionary, where you could actually kind of message the person sitting next to you instead of speaking to them, you know? So, yeah, it was, it was kind of pretty basic what we had to sell then. Microsoft wasn't deemed an enterprise company. You know, we were selling to banks and they were like, you guys don't understand technology. You're not big enterprise. So and and we, you know, we, we were it was we were a very agile business. We, you know, I, I was quite lucky uh, in Microsoft. I, I, I started in selling to the education sector and, and by chance I ended up doing probably one of the biggest deals Microsoft had ever done at that point in its career. We, we sold a, a deal to Northern Ireland government called Classroom 2000 where we licensed 460,000 kids and 60,000 teachers for 10 years. So that was the first time I kind of ended up working with Corp in Seattle, where we did a big deal. And then from there, I moved into financial services, 
uh, I went across RMS, which was kind of retail manufacturer and scientific, you know, did big deals. So I did a deal with say, Unilever for 190,000 desktops, did a deal, you know, we did big deals, right? They were kind of hundreds of millions of pounds worth of business for software, you know, so, so started small, went into education, then just projected through, you know, just went through my career at Microsoft. And, and I, I jumped around, not, not, you know, jumping around, but, uh, you know, I got involved in different parts of the business and I ended up working in Seattle for, for quite a long time at the corporate headquarters. You know, so it was a fantastic time. You know, I mean, when I joined Microsoft, there was 12,000 people. And when I left, including contractors, there was 200,000. So we, I went through the whole growth of the business. You know, there was a term, the rising tide raises all the ships. You know, so you saw lots of people's career get elevated, you know, because of the growth of the business, which was, you know, it's just a fantastic place to be. Yeah, no, I bet. And do you think... A part of it, obviously, you can never design it. But looking back, do you think that stood you in good stead joining a company which which wasn't Microsoft now? Because imagine if you're a salesperson now joining Microsoft, like it's just a whole different world. Like it's a different challenge. It's, I'm sure it's still just as exciting. But from your point of view, you joined something that wasn't that well known, so you were scrapping for business and and really enjoying it on the on the way up. I'm sure. I don't. I don't think I would do well in Microsoft now. Actually, to be honest, if I was to join today. You know, as a sales guy, I was, I was very, very entrepreneurial as a sales guy at Microsoft. And, and as the companies grow, you know, it becomes a lot more structured. And and it was more the Wild West when I joined. You know, we were writing contracts in the back of taxis, going to client meetings and stuff. Whereas now it's, it's very, it's very structured, you know. So I don't, I don't, I don't know if, I mean, people there now that stayed when I was there that know me well would probably say I was definitely right. I wouldn't fit in. But, um, you know, I think it's all, everything's a point in time. You know, life life is a, a point in time. So, you know, what's right for you at a certain point in your career might not be right for you later on. I mean, I, yeah. I loved I loved working for Microsoft. I mean, it was a it was a great place to be. It won the best the best companies to work for multiple years when I was there. And and actually that that's one of the things I've brought into our new business. You know, we you know, all of my staff have got stock, uh, everyone's got private medicine, everyone's got whole of life critical cover. You know, we've, you know, we've, we, we, we focus heavily on training and education, and, and that's something I learned at Microsoft. You know, we, we give people space to learn and grow. Uh, we empower our management teams to run their own, you know, parts of the business. You know, so we're, we're not, I'm not a control freak. You know, a lot of, a lot of CEOs kind of want to dabble in everything. I, I actually let my, my, my management team, you know, handle, handle their business without too much interruption from myself. You know, they're better at what they do than I am, right? So, you know, my CTO is more technical than I am. My head of operations is more better at the operations than I am. And my job is to make sure everyone's got the freedom to, to, to be successful. Nice, I like that. You're originally from Fife, right? So do you ever look back now thinking when you were born and raised in Fife that you'd ever sit in kind of meetings with Bill Gates at some point? You know, it's really interesting. I, I've, my career advice when I was at school was, hey, you're pretty smart, go and be a sparky at Recite Dockyard. You know, that, that was the aspiration that the school had for me, which is really quite sad. And and I didn't, you know, I didn't know, um, I didn't even know the target was there that I ended up in. You know, so I had nothing to aim for, right? I just, uh, I just, I just wanted to do the best I, I could. I, I didn't really associate with anyone well off when I was young either. You know, we, we were brought up in a council estate, so I never really, you know, everyone was the same, right? We're all, you know, I've got great friends who were still my friends when I was at school. But when 
went out with this girl who lived in Limekilns, which was the posh part in Fife. And uh, and and her her dad's mate was the CEO of John Menzies. You know, so it was the first time I'd kind of seen well-off people, and 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 it kind of and it makes you want to be like that. Do you know what I mean? It, you, you kind of, I think. In, I, I talk a lot about this stuff to people, right? Uh, I, I'm on the, uh, you know, the kind of young enterprise Scotland. I talk about inspiration, aspiration, education, and opportunity. You know, and if we can start to really inspire people, you know, to to want to do better, uh, and, and and that they have the aspiration to be successful, you know, and actually success be celebrated, and then we've got the education mechanism in Scotland anyway to do it. It's just about embracing it, you know, and then then after that, it's about creating opportunity. You know, and if you can get those four things right, we'd, we'd live in a much better place. But no, I didn't have a clue, you know, uh, that, that I would end up working in, at Microsoft. Was uh, was was uh, was 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 a bit luck actually how I joined. And um, yeah, it's, it's it's better to be lucky than good, right? I mean, anyone that, that does well in life that doesn't say they've had bits of luck along the way, they're lying, right? Because because you do need a bit of luck. You know, fine, you get lucky to get the opportunity, but your job is to seize the opportunity. But uh, I, I didn't know people. I didn't know jobs like mine existed. Right? I didn't know that you could fly to New, New York three times in one week for meetings. You know, I, I I didn't go on a plane until I was 17 years old. You know, so that 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 was alien to me. Yeah, no, I, I think it's amazing though, and some of the things you mentioned there uh, about kind of sitting on the Young Enterprise Scotland and some of the stuff we'll cover later in the podcast. I think it's really important. Um, so in less than 10 minutes, we've done a whistle stop through your entire sales career at Microsoft and others. Um, but let's jump straight into, into for it. So just before we actually get to that, did you always think kind of sitting at Microsoft at a certain point in your career that, do you know what, I'm going to run my own thing? Like, was that in the back of your head? Never. Never even thought about it once. Right? No, was, no way. No, no, never once thought about it. No, never even, never even crossed my mind. I was living in the smooth groove, right? You know, getting well paid, stock options, you know, pretty good expenses budget, couple of secretaries, you know, it's like I never thought. And then um and then I, I ended up moving to Accenture uh, as a partner and then uh, I went back to Microsoft and then we had the we had the idea to to build what we've got now um while we were there and I, I couldn't convince Microsoft to build it. So we, we left and built it ourselves. So that and that was it. I I started this business when I was forty four years old, and I, I think that's important. There was a a, a paper just came out uh, a couple of weeks ago by MIT, or maybe now ages, but I only saw it a couple of weeks ago. But uh, I saw a paper a couple of weeks ago by MIT that said the uh, average age of a founder is forty five. You know, and if you think about it, you know, one of the things that we spoke a lot about at Microsoft was three phases of your career which was learn as much, earn as much, and leverage as much. So if you think about now, the network I have, by, you know, I've got a network all over the world because I run a global business uh, inside, inside Microsoft. Um, then I've got, I've, you know, I'll be opening up in New York soon. And I spoke to the guy who's actually skiing in, uh, in Utah at the moment, you know, about, right, I'm ready for you to come and join us in New York in the summer, you know, and, and, and you, I've got that, right? But... Everyone seems to think that startups and, and tech people are young, right? But actually, you need to build something and you need to have the kind of nouns to actually be able to go and be successful. And I think I think if you look, really, the, the, the people that kind of are building quality startups, you know, are a bit older, but it, it seems to be the youngsters that get all the press. Yeah, no, actually, it's a, it's a really good point. And we've, we've kind of touched on it a little bit on the show before, but not at a huge amount of depth. But it is one of those things that kind of pisses me off a bit where a lot of the people in the 
kind of papers or the trade press are these kind of like young people who've started something straight off the bat and quite often if you if you go back through some of them they fail after like six to 12 months but they've already had all this press and all these like they've got some investment and they go a bit mental um there's probably a lot to be said for doing it the other way around so, i mean the companies that i know that are doing really well just now and um are either getting investment or don't need it because they're doing so well probably have someone wh- whether or not it's a ceo whether it's a cfo whatever but they've just got a little bit more of that kind of like industry experience and either it's their network or they've seen a lot of stuff happen so yeah. they can avoid some of the more common pitfalls which we might get to in a bit so you mentioned you had the idea while in microsoft so how did that kind of how did the idea come about is it the same now? And it's probably worth touching on before we uh, go too much further. Um, what can you and the, and the team at Forer are doing? I'll answer one of the questions first, right? The, it's exactly how we said it was going to be, right? We actually came up with this in 2008, right? And what we said in 2008 is exactly what we're doing now, right? It's the ability to create, deploy, analyze, optimize big market and websites, right? And that, that was it, right? We it was, It's quite serendipitous what happened, actually. Uh, there was a guy called Neil Cameron, who I was really close to, and unfortunately he died of cancer a couple of years ago. I was very close to Neil, and Neil was the CIO of Unilever. And, uh, and Unilever um, is, is a massive, I mean, everyone knows the brands of Unilever, but sometimes people don't know the, who Unilever are. So yeah. Unilever have things like Magnum's ice cream, Dove soap, you know, you name it, they, they make it, right? They're, they're, yeah. They've got something like $14 billion brands. And um, the the CIO, this was 2006, the CIO of Unilever uh, asked me to uh, help him facilitate a meeting between tech and marketing. So uh, we 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 got billed to do a, a, a two-hour session on the connected consumer. And to everyone else, uh, Gates was the richest guy in the world. To me, he was just an awesome sales tool, right? So, you know, if you say to Gates that, you, you know, to a client, right, we'll get billed to do a meeting with you. You know, most people want to go. So uh, so we got the top 10 marketing people and the top 10 technologists of Unilever in one room uh, in Seattle. And it was interesting. I, I had to brief them on the meeting. And I said, look, we've got uh, 10 from market and 10 from IT. And he said, who do you want me to speak to? And I was like, well, what do you mean? He was like, well, do you want me to speak to market or do you want me to speak to IT? I was like, I want you to speak to both. And he goes, I don't know how to do that. Right. This is, a, this is an interesting one, isn't it? Right. And there's a brilliant story in this. This is this is freaking funny. Right. So so we, we did the meeting and it was amazing. Right. It was it was amazing. In fact, one of the guys who ran media buying for Unilever globally, um, Louis Decomo, uh, I saw him in Cannes uh, about three years ago. And remember, this meeting was in 2006. He came up to me and goes, you know that meeting we had in Seattle? That was still the best meeting I've ever been at. Right. Which is which is amazing to hear. And, and so what a great meeting. And and so uh, Gates went back to Steve Ballmer, who was the CEO of Microsoft, and um, uh, told him about the meeting and how good it was. And, Gates, and Ballmer's PA phoned me and said, hey, can you come up and see uh, uh, Steve? They, they want your notes because uh, Gates has been raving about this meeting. I was like, hey, okay. So I went to my tech guy, uh, Alan Lockhart, and said, hey, Alan, have you got the notes from that Ballmer meeting? Because uh, the Gates meeting, Ballmer wants the notes. And uh, he goes, none of her took it, and neither did I. <laughs> so, so I was shitting myself. So, so I, um, I go, uh, I, I phoned up uh, uh, Chris Turner, who was the CTO of uh, of Unilever, 
and said, "Hey, I've I've got a problem. I've got uh, I've got Balmer wanting notes of me from this meeting, and I never took any." So he goes, "I will give you hours." So the client put together this amazing set of notes, uh, which I took up to to the big cheese, and um, and uh, the, the he took one look and went, "These are too good. You never did these." Right? <laughs> so it was uh, so that that happened in the meeting, right? So so anyway, from that meeting. We ended up doing about 40 million of business that was unplanned. Uh, like we ended up hosting links, Axe, Dove, Magnum.coms uh, on the, the Microsoft infrastructure. We uh, we ran the Real Women campaign uh, on MSN infrastructure uh, from the target audience was affluent non-working women, right? For Dove Soap at that time, it was affluent non-working women. Affluent non-working women used the web between 9.30 and 11.30 in the morning. Um, so we ran the TV advert from Sydney over to Seattle, 9.30 in the morning. We did a survey about the soap and we did a survey around about the TV advert for the Real Women campaign. And the, um, the, the feedback from the survey was off what the actual, uh, what the actual uh, uh, criteria was. And so the, the, we, we re, usually were reshot a seven-second segment, right? But, but on the back of that, we ended up doing, like, it was like 40 million of business in, like, 10 months. Uh, we, we hadn't even thought about this kind of stuff. So if you think about Microsoft, they had, you know, one and a half billion consumers connecting through Xbox and all this stuff. Uh, but we also had an enterprise business. And so I got dragged out of my job and told to work out how we actually connected the consumer world to the IT world. So as part of that job, I got 89 product teams in one room. Again, which is really hard to do in a company like Microsoft, right? Try to get 40, 89 product teams, you know, all coordinated with all different presidents and organizations and P&Ls and stuff, right? No one, no one liked each other or spoke to each other. It was like the kind of, like the guys in Xbox were the, the, the snowboarders, you know, and we were all the kind of skiers, you know, we were kind of <laughs> like, you know, we're very different kind of people. And so uh, we, we got 89 people in one room. I gave them four slides, target audience, monetization, uh, what your product was and how it fits into the Microsoft stat- strategy. So we gave them four slides. And then and then I had a couple of architects with me working on it. Everyone presented to everyone else. And we came up with this idea of a stack for marketing, an infrastructure layer, a services layer, a data layer, a content creation layer, and a distribution channel all managed by a portal. And, and from that meeting, we came up with that idea. And that must have been about 2008. Um, and so, so, and that shows you how long it takes to get a, a big enterprise product to market, right? Because that was like 12 years ago, and we're just starting to now make headway with the product at scale with big clients. So to build enterprise software takes a long time. So, you know, even if you kind of start, you know, as a 20-year-old straight from university, 21, you're going to be 33 before you've got the product anyway, so you're not going to be a youngster. <laughs> you know, when you see these kind of young startup guys, it's more kind of roundabout consumer type app type stuff rather than enterprise software. Enterprise software is very difficult to build build and you need a lot of experience to build it. You know, and that yeah. goes back to your point earlier about the kind of startups. Just on that point, right, I've actually taken three startups out of uh, uh, Edinburgh University School of Informatics and two have exited and one is doing well and well on its way. So we took two big years out of uh, School of Inf- Informatics and they were with me for two and a half, three years. And then Facebook bought them. And then uh, we did uh, Nalmighty, and they're off to London. Somebody else bought them. And then I've got Player Data, who, who are in my offices just now. So I've got a dedicated space in my office of about 1,600 square foot, where I grab smart young kids and smart startups and, and, and give them a nest, you know, where they can use my guys and for advice and my board members, and they can use me, and they can 
we give them all the tools to be successful. So we have helped some of these youngsters, and they've all been under 25. You know, the kids are all one of them. One of them actually, two, in fact, two of them are multi multi millionaires working in Facebook now. You know, so <laughs> so we've done a bit of that to help them. So that's the kind of stuff we've done as well. You know, and I, and I'm doing more of it. So so I'm I'm getting involved more at Strathclyde University because uh, Strathclyde University are really starting to push entrepreneurialism. So I'm going to go start speaking on the uh, on the on the Strathclyde University Business School on entrepreneurialism in the next couple of months. Nice one. Kind of recently, you guys did a bit of a rebrand, and I suppose on the surface it probably doesn't look like much, like oh, a company changed their name, slightly different angle, blah 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 blah. But it's actually quite a big deal, especially when you guys went from being called Cortex right to For It. Um, yeah. Was that something that was in the making for ages or was it one of those things where you and the management team sat down and were like, listen, we need to just change this? We, we, we needed to get a new name uh, because because there was too many. Uh, well, one example was there's actually something inside Microsoft called Cortex now and a couple of my pals were phoning me up saying, well done, you've sold to Microsoft, uh, <laughs> which, which I wish I had it done. But uh, the, um, and, and there was there's about two or 300 companies called Cortex around the globe, you know, and it's just mucky and muddy. And uh, we decided and we couldn't get Cortex.com. Right? If you're gonna if you're gonna get a company and start a company, you want a two-syllable, a one or two-syllable name, something that's dead simple, and .com. Right? So we couldn't get that. So we wanted the doc. We wanted like you know forit.com or you know like you know like Skyscanner. Right? It's Skyscanner. Yeah. Anything that's easy to remember. If you've got a name that's hard to remember, then it's kind of it's, it's kind of difficult for branding. So we just we, we we knew that there was too many companies called uh, uh, Cortex. Also, we we had actually started the business as a joint venture with uh, WPP, which is the kind of large you know market conglomerate uh, uh, kind of agency. And um, we did a management buyout, and and the the name was Legacy from that as well. You know when we when we started the business, uh, WPP just gave us a big list of company names that they owned and kind of cortex was what we liked so we just grabbed it um but once we once we start getting going forward i mean I, I i was pretty wedded to cortex actually i quite liked it um but uh, uh we, we once we got once we once we did it but it's really difficult to change your name you yeah. know it's quite expensive as well and and there's nothing left you know and then you've got to go to urban dictionary to make sure there's no connotations to the name we we had a couple of false starts on that one as well when i got pointed out a couple of the meanings of some of the names that we were looking at so that, <laughs> yeah, that kind of flew us to the through us off a little bit so especially if you want to go into global markets you know you've got to do a bit of research to make sure you're not you know uh, insulting even even microsoft search engines called bing you know and and a, a bing in scotland's actually a kind of scrap heap you know, so it's, I don't think I knew that. You know, I think not not the part about Microsoft. I didn't know the Scottish word. But yeah, so so it was a big it was a big thing for us, and we spent a lot of money on it. You know, and getting the branding right, getting all that. And I'm not very good at that, right? That's not my thing. I'm not very creative when it comes to that kind of stuff. So I, I rely heavily on others. Um, it's hmm. difficult, you know. I just yeah. call it silly names. You know? Yeah, no, we're we're still going through a process, and it's not as dramatic as your rebrand, and it, it takes a while, and it takes people to get. I don't know. It, it, it takes a certain mindset, and I'm the same as you. I struggle with the creativity element. Let's jump on to pandemic. So I've got here in my notes the kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly. So I read from one of your other interviews that pandemic-wise, because your company is cloud-based, it wasn't actually that hard for you guys to continue working as normal with everyone remotely. 
um, than it probably was for other companies, right? Yeah, we got we were quite lucky actually because we got a bit of a false start with it uh, or a head start. Sorry, we 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 changed internet provider maybe about five months before, and the old guys switched the uh, the, the connection off, and the new guys turned up with the wrong switch. Uh, so we had no internet in our office for a fortnight, and um, so we 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 actually sent everyone home, uh, and and also we 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 run big websites for companies like Tesco Bank, so they they do a lot of business continuity disaster recovery type testing on us, so so actually we've got everything well documented and well well practiced. So we 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 shut our office. Uh, we had to shut our office for two weeks, maybe five months before. Uh, and and uh, you know that kind of that kind of sharpened the focus on how we did it, yeah. and then um, and then when 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 the actual pandemic hit, we 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 shut the office two weeks before the government shut the country. You know we saw it starting to creep up. We saw it was getting serious. Uh, we we've got a really nice office, and um, and so we we sent everybody home. But because we've got such a nice office. And I didn't want to. Uh, I didn't want to uh, wreck the office with people taking monitors and chairs and stuff home. Uh, we just we just bought everything new. Uh, we just did, we just got our facilities team to do a survey of all the staff, what they needed, uh, and we made it as comfortable as possible for them. You know, in advance of uh, everyone kind of the rush to IKEA to buy desks. You know, so so we we done it already. And, and actually, I'm glad we've done that now because we one we didn't think it would last this long. You know, I, yeah, I mean, no one thought, you know, no one thought we'd still be at home. It's nearly a year. In fact, it'll, it'll be a year in three weeks' time that we yeah. sent everyone home. And uh, and so now, I don't see us going back to working five days a week in the office. I think we'll end up with, and, and I think some it's a it's a choice thing, right? I mean. Some of my guys are desperate to get back to work. I mean, some of them are desperate to get back to the office, and others yeah. are not so. So because we've bought all the stuff and everyone's got the infrastructure at home now, I reckon we'll end up with a kind of three days in the office, two days at home, or you know, three days at home and two days in the office. I think it's it's going to be very flexible for us uh, in the way we do things. But one of the things that's actually done for us that's been a great help is we can't get enough software developer resource in Scotland, right? Yeah. So if we're all working, if we're all working from home, then it doesn't matter where anyone is anymore, right? So what we've we've done is we've kind of drawn a line right down the globe and said, right, where's the easiest people, the easiest place for us to work? Where's where culturally, culturally, the people are people, you know, the same in that, uh, you know, English is the first language because you know communication is important. So we're hiring people down in South Africa now. So we're just about to make our first hires down in SA. They can work down there. They'll work for. They'll be part of our business. You know, they'll work for a company, and then, and then, and then it's fine. And and actually, if you need to go down there for meetings, it's actually quite an easy place to go. I used to go to South Africa quite a lot when I was uh, working for Microsoft. So you can get the kind of. I think it flies about six or seven o'clock at night. You land at six o'clock in the morning. You know, so if you want to go, once we open up again, you know, you you all got a meeting on the Wednesday. You just fly down the Tuesday night. You sleep all night in the plane. Go to your meeting. And if you want, you can come back on the Wednesday night, be back in the office on Thursday. You know, you've been to South Africa and you've only been out of the office one day, you know. Yeah. And and that's we used to do that quite a lot. I mean, I did that kind of stuff loads of times before. So that that's that, that's one of the things that the pandemic's thrown up for us. We're gonna have we've got much better working practices now with regards to delivery and software development. The bit that's difficult and the bit I really hate and the thing I want to really get back to is the innovation piece. 
you know, yeah. so when you're actually kind of like, you know, when you're doing product reviews, you're doing ideation and you've got everyone around the room, I like a bit of tension, right? And I like a bit of kind of arguments going on. And I think you can get a better quality argument when you're all in the room together <laughs> rather than on Teams. You know, and I, I just think it's I think it's more interactive and people people feel more confident to actually speak when you're all together. And then you can read the body language as well. I can see if somebody's not happy with something, but, but they might not want to say it, you know? And then yeah. I can bring them into the chat. But if you're on a Teams call, it's a bit more difficult. So that that that's so so uh, when it comes to kind of working practices delivery, it's been fine. Um, I, I'm concerned about the kind of maybe the mental health uh, of some of the staff because I think you know we've got some young kids who are apprentices for us. They go to university one day a week and they work in their bedroom in their parents' house and they're they're living their life in their parents' bedroom at house. You know, so I think I'd like to kind of see more of a social element when it comes to that stuff. And I've had a few a few times I've had to go and kind of see people and go for a walk and have a chat with them just to kind of make sure they're okay. You know, because it can be a bit of a problem, right? You know, you know mental health is an important thing in life. And uh, going back to kind of what I learned at Microsoft, uh, you know, looking after your staff is one of the, probably the greatest lessons I learned. Uh, I think because I think we've hired new people, I think it's dropped to a quarter, but it used to be a third. Uh, a third of our people used to be trained in St. John's Ambulance Mental Health First Aid. You know, so but, but when everyone's in the office, then you can help. But when people yeah. are all at home, then it's a bit more difficult. So the communication's made more difficult by the pandemic. Yeah, no, 100% agree. I, I can't wait to not have to do presentations on Teams where you actually can't oh. see anybody you're presenting to. You're just doing it to your, oh. own, your own PowerPoint and then dead oh. silence. Oh, it's on mute. I mean, you know, like talking to 40 people on mute is very difficult, you know? Oh, it's so hard to read the room. You just feel like a really shit stand-up comedian where, like, there's yeah. no interaction and it's just dead. Yeah. And from a work point of view as well, I mean, you were already running Microsoft's education site, but that went from being a, a fairly busy website before COVID to being yeah. probably the busiest website. Well, it wasn't the busiest, but it jumped up a lot. It, 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 it went from about 5 million users to 25 million users overnight. You know, so it was a five-fold increase. You know, yeah. so it, it, jumped up, it's, it jumped up a lot. Jumping from 5 million to 25 million, did that... Did that test you guys, or did it just prove all along that the system was ready and, and it was good uh, to we go? Never, we never even noticed. You know? <laughs> nice. So well, we noticed. You know, we noticed because it's all monitored. But I mean, we the way we've designed our system, we can flex and scale easy. Right? Yeah. We did the launch for Windows and Surface for Microsoft. Yeah. You know, so when the CEO of uh, Microsoft stood up on stage to announce the new products to six hundred journalists, you know, it was like you switch them on and it just fires up. Yeah, so, that's amazing. You know, our, our scale is limited to the scale of Azure, and that's yeah. pretty. <laughs> pretty it's pretty hefty. Yeah. It's um, so that's the good part, and yeah. so far, and some of the stuff you guys have learned, you touched on some of the bad already. But I mean, you've sent me some pictures of the office, and, and it's incredible. And you're paying for it, and you can't use it. And like you said, the, the staff point of view, there'll be a lot of them chomping at the bit to get back in. So that's obviously the the downside. Yeah. It's just a cost, right? I mean, we had we, we can't we, we're on a long term lease, right? So you know we're paying, I think it's thirty eight thousand a month for an office that's empty. Yeah. You know, so it's it is what it is. It's a cost to do business, but it is a bit annoying, you know. So and you just think that for other companies as well, like companies that have went all singing, all dancing, six, seven floor HQs in London, like that must be eye watering, right? I think. There's, there's a yin and a yang, right? We, we've not been affected too badly because we've we've um, we're still getting our income. But yeah. you know, if you if your income stops and you've got a, a load of costs that you can't get rid of, then that's that's very very difficult. 
you know yeah anything you know, in any travel or hospitality oh. or something like they just I, there's, there's no way of diversifying a travel business right i feel i feel so so sorry for these guys i feel sorry for students that are graduating just now that have been offered positions with um you know with with firms you know the you know, I've, I've heard, you know, stories of people getting their offers withdrawn, you know, so they're leaving university with big student loans. You know, there's there's, there's real problems going on around the world. Yeah. You know, so so the problems we've got, you know, we can manage, you know, we need to take care of our people. We can afford everything. But, yeah, some people are struggling a lot more than we are. You know, but yeah. I, I, I really do feel sorry for a lot of companies. You know, it really is difficult. We've touched on this already with your South African uh, venture, but I want to touch on hiring. We always do this on the show and, and having worked at Microsoft and I'm sure done a fair bit of hiring. First of all, did you notice a big difference from hiring for your team in Microsoft and then for your own company? Did your mentality change at all or did, did, did Microsoft help shape you a little bit? We, we, I mean, everyone makes mistakes, right? We've made mistakes hiring people, you know, but we look at, we look at one, are, are, are you capable of doing this job, right? So, you know, in software development, it's quite easy because you can, you can do tests, right? There's, there's actually online tests that people do. Um, but then, then you look at it with regards to cultural fit, you know, you know, are you the right kind of person for a company? You know, we're, we're, we're actually going to grow quite quickly. You know, do you like change? You know, it's all that kind of stuff that, that I think is very important uh, for for uh, for our, uh, our, our business, you know, or, or hiring people. But yeah, I mean, we, we look at, we tend to get multiple people. We go around through rounds of interview loops. We hire a lot of people we know. You know, we have yeah. incentive schemes for for the um, for the staff to to bring in people they know. I, I like the fact that it's like simple by design. That that makes sense. Yeah. And you mentioned some of your interns as well, and, and this is really interesting. And to be honest, we could probably do another whole show on they're it. They're not interns. They're not interns. They're apprentices. Sorry, apprentices. Wrong word. Yeah. Apprentices. Uh, yeah, interns are not a good thing. Uh, yeah. No, appren- <laughs> apprentices, where you guys give them a platform to work, essentially full-time role, pay them a salary, and they do uni once a week. Is that right? Yeah. So they go to university. Well, so first and second year, they go to university one day a week. Yeah. Uh, third and fourth year, they go to university. They go to the university physically one day a month or online, yeah. and then we give them, you know, one day a week for three for for the other three weeks where they do uni work at home relevant yeah. to their job. So we basically give them one day a week. We pay them pretty well actually. I mean, the 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 fourth years are higher than the average salary I think in the UK. That's amazing. But certainly for a four-day week there will be, um, but yeah. So they they basically leave university with no student loans, no SAS. They, it's paid for by Skills Development Scotland, and they're amazing. We've got five graduating this year, um, so I've already booked a pear tree for September to throw a big party for oh, them. Yes, but uh, yeah, we'll get you along actually. But they will invite you. There's there's uh, we've got five in in the the first trimester because you when you're doing apprenticeships part time. It's not. It's not two sessions. It's three. So, so the first trimester, uh, we got one pass and uh, four merits. And the That's person, the person who got the pass was very close to the to a merit. So, you know, they're all tracking for potentially all five could get first class honours. And and from the time we've done this, we've got twelve kids at university. They're not kids. They're young adults, right? But we, I call them kids. But they're um, we've got twelve young adults, talented young adults at university, and uh, we've not had a single exam failed by any of them at all. You know, uh, across across the last uh, four years, and I might be stealing your USB here, so I apologise if everyone just does this now. But the reason that I love this probably more than anything, and I said this to you the other day, a software engineering degree for a lot of people, software engineering is a hobby, right? And for a lot of other people, they're just naturally talented at it. So 
the idea that you get them into a real business doing what they like to do in a real environment makes so much more sense to me than like a theoretical five-day week at university like it's a bit like it's a bit like taking a footballer or a golfer and saying right you've got four years of classroom-based learning and then we might put you into a game like why not just stick them into the game I mean, oh, you should do you should do a podcast on my apprentices. Just get my apprentices in a room and speak to them about how it's changed their lives, right? And and the the apprenticeships are not a second choice, right? Because a yeah. lot of people used to look down the nose, going, "Oh, you weren't good enough to go to university, so you're doing an apprenticeship now," right? Well, you know, if you talk to the guys, I've got two two in fifth year uh, dropped out of university uh, after one after first year or first term, one first term, one first year. And if yeah. you look at them now compared to where the people that stayed behind, they're a mile ahead of them, like literally a mile ahead of them. You know, uh, they don't have any student loans. In fact, one of the guys has uh, just done Prince 2 practitioner as well. So he's going to have an honours degree, probably first in uh, uh, computer systems. He's got a Prince 2 practitioner. He's got MCPs, which are Microsoft certified professionals that are really hard to get. And he's got three MTAs and he's got five years work experience. And he's 23 yeah. years old. Right? It's, just, it's, just a, it's a no-brainer, right? And also just yeah. like, it's just, technology changes so much. So like if they're sitting in a active software development team at Fora and suddenly Microsoft bring out this brand new thing and everyone's like, this is going to change software development forever, you guys will get to touch on it. If you're at uni, and I might be wrong here, but I, I imagine it'll take you a few years to catch up. Oh, the unis, we're way ahead of the universities. Yeah, the yeah. stuff we're touching is way ahead of what the universities are touching. But, but what and, university... And it, Sorry, I was going to say yeah, what university gives is the methodology, right? Yeah. So they so they give the kind of structured methodology, proper way of working, right? Which which is the same. It's a bit like learning to shoot, right? You know, you shoot with a telescopic sight or you shoot with a kind of iron sight. You know, when you learn to shoot with an iron sight, you, you've got to be pretty good or you just kind of make things work when you've got more efficient tools, right? You make things worse. So yeah. you've got to have a solid foundation and understand what you're doing, and that's what university gives, and then we give them the latest tools to work with. Yeah, and I, I think it's like an amazing mix. Um, so it totally makes sense. So two last points we'll try and cover off as quick as we can. We had an interesting chat on investment before the podcast, and I think I'm right in saying you guys have kind of built for it on the back of no external investment, right? Yeah, we've not, we've not got, we've got, we, we, we took a little bit from, we've got a partner who helped us a little bit when we did the management buyout. Yeah. Other than that, we've, you know, we've run our business now since we did the management buyout the last three years, totally on our own coin. Yeah. And yeah. probably one of the things, and you'll be in a much better position than I am to talk about this, but one of the things that's maybe wrong with some of the startups we talked about earlier, they kind of, they start the company, they've got the idea for, let's say, for it, this amazing CMS platform. And rather than going out and getting a client or going out and proving themselves, they think straight away, probably because of outside influence, maybe I should go and get a Series A funding or a seed funding. Right, money. Yeah. And they take, we, they take a bunch of cash from someone. Yeah, we, we, we are tracking a, another company in Germany. We, we're watching what they're doing. They've raised $159 million, you know? Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah, you know, we, you know, one of our clients did a proof of concept with, with us and them and said we were miles ahead of them. You know, and what we've done is we've used our own cash. You know, so everything we've got from clients we've put back into the business. You know, yeah. so we, we know exactly what we've got to spend. We're very, very uh, diligent in the way we spend money. Uh, it kind of goes against us when it comes to things like awards, because it seems just now in Scotland that, you know, the kind of all the awards are all around about, hey, how much money we've raised. It's like that's the first, whenever I speak to other startup guys, they just brag about how much cash they've raised. I'm like, well, what you've really done is you've sold your company cheaper. 
you know. Um, how much cash have you? Good. How much cash have you got? Should be the uh, ah, award. How much you like, oh, What's your or, top or, You know. Yeah. Fine. Or how many? Or how, how many? Cust- how many customers ah, do you have? Or like how many ah, headcount? I, I, I went and spoke to one of the guys who got the CEO of the year, right? And I was like, <laughs> when he told me his turnover, I, I started laughing. I was like, you're joking, <laughs> right? Uh, and he's like, so he's he's he was burning, he was burning, uh, you know, he was burning two hundred grand a month. And it's, uh, it's, it's a da- and I don't want to say that like you can't do it that way, and I'm sure there's loads of successes, but the, it's a dangerous game when you're in in the job that I do. I see a lot of companies, and we speak to a lot of founders, and some of them. I don't know, it feels like their big aim is to get a Series A or a Series B and tell everyone they raised 50 million. Whereas surely they should be thinking, I want to make this the best company I can. And if somebody comes in and buys us for 50 million, that's great news. I think people should look at a new concept and how to run a business, right? Get some clients and sell them stuff, you know? <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be novel. <laughs> no, but if, I, I tell you, it's a really good book, right? Andrew Carnegie's book on uh, the autobiography he wrote in 1918. And that's what he talks about, right? It's, it's just like, you know, provide services that deliver value, that companies buy, that make you a profit, they invest back in your business, that grows your business. Yeah. You know? And then you can just close the book and not worry about investment anymore. People um, should care no, about getting to profit, right? Profitable yeah. cash, right? Because think about every deal has got three currencies, right? Cash, PR, and feedback. So if you've got more companies, right, a queue forms a queue. So if you build a product that lots of people buy, more people buy it because other people buy it, right? If you're hmm. raising money, all you're doing is burning money. If you're getting clients, then you're 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 building a successful business. So so getting to profitable cash is more important, as far as I'm concerned, than whatever money you raise. Yeah, people seem quite laissez faire. Like when I speak to them and they say, like, oh no, we're not planning on being profitable for the next three years. And I always like in my head, it always confuses me. So I'm like, I know what they mean is we don't have to be profitable because we've got the runway yeah. and we're a bit safe. Yeah. But like in in my head, you should I, I would always be thinking. I really need to start making some money. Like we need the company to be profitable now. So, 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 so turnovers vanity, profit sanity, cash flows reality. Yeah. You know. So my CEO looks at the kind of accounting book, and I look at the cash book. So I, yeah. all I care about is how much money we've got coming in and how much money we've got going out. You yeah. know, so that's my that's my main thing. And, uh, and if you've got more coming in than going out, then things are good. If you've got more going out than coming in, then things are not so good. And I imagine that just that's that one snippet from the show is probably one of the reasons you guys are doing so well now. Um, and then just to finish, and I appreciate this is a, a difficult question to answer, but do you think, or, or do you guys have a plan for what the rest of 2021 looks like and, and even a little bit yeah. further than that? Like, are you guys consolidating what you're doing and just keep on going? Oh, we've got a really clear plan what we're going to do in 2021, right? So we've got some new functions uh, that, that our clients want in our product. Uh, we've done a survey of our customers through a really cool uh, design agency for the user experience called Nile HQ. Uh, oh, so, yeah, brought, right, so we've got Nile in. So they've they've given us a whole lot of stuff that could make our stuff better. Uh, so what we're going to do is we've just finished version. We've got version two out. Lloyd's are running on that. Uh, we're going to move our other clients onto that. We're going to implement the stuff that Nile HQ are recommending around about the user experience and uh, make the front end pretty. And then come July, we're going to start running a million miles an hour, start selling again, when we can all start to travel again and go and see customers again. So nice you know, so between now and the summer, it's going to be all about the tech and just make it as good as we can and amazing. And then uh, I was speaking to somebody I worked with before about coming and joining us as a sales manager. Uh, we're going to build a sales team and we're going to go sell the heck out of what we've built. Nice one. That sounds amazing. Well, it'd be amazing to get you back on and see how that all progresses. Um, But thank you so much for joining. Really do appreciate the time. Thank you.
Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs>